good singing. You may be seated. Well, thanks to Zach. He's not in here, but every week he tries to come up with songs that match the topic of the sermon. And trusting and obeying is very appropriate. That's what we're going to be talking about. The Battle of Jericho and Joshua's part in it and what it all means. I've been looking forward to this message. It's full of wonderful, powerful principles uh, that we can apply in our walk with God. Uh, the so-called Battle of Jericho wasn't a battle at all. It was an amazing demonstration of power unleashed by God when his people simply obeyed him. Obedience to God is one of the keys, one of the fundamental keys of the victorious Christian life. Uh, we'll explore that a little more as we get into the message, but some background information on Jericho. Jericho is a very interesting city to this day. Do you know that it's uh, the city in the world that is the furthest below sea level? In the whole world, there's no other city quite like it. It's 850 feet below sea level. It's 3,500 feet below Jerusalem, 26 miles away on a mountaintop. Jericho is way down there in the Jordan Valley. It's also one of the oldest cities in the world. Its history goes back thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and over the centuries, over the millennia, it's grown gradually. Uh, the reason for the... Uh, uh, city being located there is it's rich in springs. There are numerous, numerous springs of water feeding that city. The soil is very fertile. Uh, it's an ideal place to build a colony, a city, uh, where you can hide behind nice, thick mud and stone walls as they did. Another interesting fact about Jericho, uh, archaeologists tell us that there is strong evidence that the walls fell down about 1,500 years before Christ. Uh, must have been caused by an earthquake. And that was the, exactly the time that the Israelites entered the Promised Land. So we know what caused those walls to fall down. Um, now the people of Jericho and Joshua's day had heard about the Israelites, uh, what they were up to, what they had achieved, their, their escape from Egypt, and all the, the different kings that they had defeated on their way to the Promised Land, and then, of course, their crossing of the Jordan River. Um, and Joshua 6 and verse 1 tells us they had tightly su shut up their city. Uh, their walls and adequate supplies of water made them feel secure. They also had a lot of food. Again, archaeologists have discovered uh, that they were... To this day, you can see evidence of large storehouses, food storehouses, under the foundations of the city. So they had water, they had food, and they had their thick walls, and they were secure. Uh, against all the known ways of attack. Back in those days, you could conquer a city by going over the walls using ladders or ramps. You could dig tunnels under the walls. Uh, you could smash holes through the walls. You could lay siege to a city and starve it into submission, or you could try and trick them like the Greeks did at the city of Troy. Remember, they sent the wooden horse there 
full of um, soldiers, and um, the people of Troy were superstitious. They thought it was an offering to their god. They brought it into the city, and the soldiers in the belly of the, the horse got out de- during the night and opened the gates, and Troy was defeated. Um, but the commander of the Lord's army, who Joshua encountered on his way to check out Jericho, uh, appeared to Je- uh, um, Joshua in 5 and verse 15, didn't bother with military strategy. His plan was unlike anything that any army before or since could conceive and turned out to be much more effective than anything man could do in his uh, cleverness to conquer a city. And there is so much we can learn from the story tonight as it applies to our lives. The first and most important lesson, I'm going to be repeating a lot of these principles as we go through the message, The first and most important lesson is that our knowledge of God and his ways is extremely limited. I mean, who could have thunk up a a solution to the Jericho problem like the one he came up with? But he did. Even those who have the privilege to claim him as their heavenly father, and that would be us, through our union with Jesus Christ, we can't begin to imagine a being so great. Uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And unbelievers, he's talking there to us, his children. Unbelievers know even less. From the willful ignorance of atheists, to the spiritual ignorance of philosophical speculators and religious practitioners who acknowledge the existence of God and then try and figure out ways to impress God, they are all gone out of the way in their folly. Scripture makes it plain that God has no sympathy for those who suppress the truth of him by their unrighteousness. Romans makes that very clear. Romans chapter uh, 1 verses 18 to 25, we won't read the whole thing, but just to give you a taste to remind you what God thinks of the ungodly. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power of and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That is God's estimation of the ungodly. And on that ominous note, let's pause and pray and get into the rest of the message. Father, please bless us tonight. Bless me, Lord, as I share this wonderful word. All these amazing facts about your goodness and greatness and glory and what you expect of us in return. Bless us as we listen. Once again, Lord, bless our pastor and his family. Bring them back to us soon. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
So we see God's estimation of those who reject him. But you know, he's not very sympathetic with those who claim to be his followers when they uh, assume that they know all there is to know about him and likely esteem him. Don't show him the honor that is due to him. Job found that to his cost. The fact is God is very great. He formed the worlds with his word. He hung the stars in place. He called them by name. He stands even now at the center, according to Hebrews chapter 1, matchless in splendor, immeasurable in stature, glorious in holiness, sustaining everything by his powerful word. His name, oh, he has a wonderful name, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we, frail and fickle as we are, have, made, have been made heirs with him of everything that he has to offer. Heirs of his everlasting glory by his goodness and kindness and grace. His intention is that we may truly know him as he truly is and approach him not as fear, not in fear as strangers do, nor by presumption as the spiritually immature do, but in awe of his majesty as his dearly beloved children and true worshippers. Paul said it to Timothy, unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we say amen to that also. Our estimation of God and appreciation of his ways is aided precisely by the kind of stories that we read in the Bible and the story of the defeat of Jericho, the conquest of Jericho, is uh, one such story. It tells us how we can draw close to God, what pleases God, what to avoid, and how we can walk continuously in victory as we serve God. How to, be a victor how to live a victorious life, how to be a victorious leader, how to engage in victorious labor, and how to enjoy vicarious conquests, that is, participating in the achievement of another and their virtuous triumphs. Now, our pastor isn't here, and I came up with that, all that alliteration just to make you feel that you don't miss him too much. Uh, and if he's watching, I hope he feels honored by that. We learn above all that every trial sent from God and every impossible challenge we face is designed to aid our spiritual growth. Let me say that again. Every trial, every impossible challenge, the greater the challenge, and as we look at Jericho, it was a, a major challenge. Those challenges are designed by God to bring us to the ends of ourselves so we'll look up and go to him for help, and there's no challenge that he can't meet. The Apostle Paul aptly summed up this truth as he recorded God's response to his pleas for deliverance from a trial that he described as a thorn in the flesh. It's a passage you're very familiar with, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. Uh, Paul had been begging God for relief from a particularly 
uh, awful uh, ailment that he had. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is the response God wants from us. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, because of this knowledge, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak in myself, then I am strong. And because of our rebellious nature, because of the corruption that is still inside us, God has to put us in that pressure cooker every now and again to make us turn to him, to make us cry out to him, to make us reach for him, to forget all the things of this life and just look to him for answers. And the greater the trial, as I've said, the greater our plea to him, the greater our need of him, and the more we'll cry out to him. So let's look at, at the principles we can learn uh, and the effects of those principles from the story of Jer Jericho, starting with a victorious life. Jericho and the battle there and the results teach us how to live a victorious life. The fact is, the defeat of Jericho was never God's primary objective. Uh, it wasn't a challenge for him. It's not as if he looked at Jericho and said, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Uh, that wasn't his focus. The children of Israel, for their part, had no idea how events would play out when they, reluctantly perhaps, and certainly with some questions, submitted to God's strange directive that they should simply walk around the city they had been told to conquer. It made no sense, but they did it. And then they were told to do it again. It made no sense the second time either, or the third, or the fourth. And it became increasingly difficult to complete the walk each day because each day brought the same results. Nothing. I just want you to put yourself in their shoes, literally, and think about what those people went through. Uh, the seventh day was the hardest. Just picture yourself there in your mind's eye. Here's this massive city with very imposing walls. And they have been told that they're going to conquer the city. And then they are directed, and we're going to look at the scriptures that support this in a moment. They directed, your job is to walk around the city, following the ark of God, following the priests, blowing their trumpets. By the way, whenever you see trumpets blown in scripture, it's, it's a picture of God's word being declared. And the other very important thing they were told is do not say a thing. And the reason they were told not to speak, they had to walk in silence, was because the longer they walked, the more they were tempted to complain to the guy next to them. Can you believe this? We're just walking around the city, up on the walls, people are laughing at us, throwing things at us, and we're supposed to just walk. But they did. And at the end of the first day, they went home tired and hungry, had a good night's sleep, no doubt, and the next morning they got up and were told they're going to walk again. 
And they did exactly the same thing, day after day, step for step, following after each other. And the dust clouds rose, and they were thirsty, they were hungry, they were irritated, and more and more of them, I dare say, were thinking to themselves, this is insane. Joshua tells us he knows what he's doing. Apparently, God knows what he's doing, but none of this makes sense. And it made even less sense the third day than it had the second day. And it made less sense the fourth day. Just doing the same thing day after day and achieving the same results. Nothing. And they come then to the last day. And they'd already been told, on this day you're going to march seven times around the city. Can you for a moment imagine what that was like for them? These are trained soldiers. They had been very successful in previous battles. They've been doing this for six days, and it's been futility and mockery and drudgery, and all they had to show for it was sore feet and parched throats and empty bellies at the end of each day. And this time they have to do it seven times. They walked, and then they walked some more, and some more, and then the walls fell down. Do you understand that this is your life and mine? This is the picture that God draws for us to teach us what he wants us to do when we encounter problems. It was a great victory, but the victory was not in the rubble of a once mighty wall and the defeat of a city. The victory, that had never been the real objective. God wasn't concerned about defeating the city. His objective, his purpose, was to secure the obedience of his people. That's why you and I go through trials. What's your response going to be at a time of trial? How are you going to react to God? What bitter thoughts are you going to think? What are you going to say to your husband or your wife or your friends? This is what God wants us to do. Just walk with me. And don't ask too many questions and don't complain and trust me. This is what victorious life looks like. If we do our part, God will do his part and the victory will be won. And the reason we so often miss the victory is because we grow impatient we get to the point where we think, God clearly has forgotten about me. I have to do something. And we do. And then God steps back and he says, okay, let me know when you're exhausted and I'll try and help you again. And so often we short-circuit God's will. It was far harder for the Israelites to conquer their disobedience, their questioning and murmuring and speculation and anger, than it was for God to knock the wall down. Far harder. Faithfully walking with God, following his presence, submitting to his will, is victorious living. And as we do that, we leave the miracles to him. We don't even try and figure out how this going to end. You can't imagine how it's going to end. Usually it ends in a way, if you do obey God, more wonderful than you could possibly imagine. So that's victorious life. The next one is victorious leadership. How do you develop a victorious leader in the Christian life? 
You do it like Joshua was developed. There are four steps. If we go back to Exodus chapter 3, there's a series of scriptures that we'll just look at very quickly that teach us what happened to Joshua and what happens to us. We begin with them, with Joshua and the Israelites as slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. This is a wonderful picture of you and I before we got saved. We lived in this world. The, the Pharaoh, the devil, God of this world, held us as his slaves. And the people of God cried out for deliverance. So in chapter 3, from verse 7 to 10 of Exodus, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, unto a good land and large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I've previously commented on that. They, they latched onto the first part, the land flowing with milk and honey, and forgot all about all those ites who were waiting to fight them. But that's human nature. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. And he speaks to Moses and says, Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If we go to chapter 17, we'll see the continuation of the story from verse 8 to 10. This is Joshua, in that first part, was one of the slaves. He came out with all of the other Israelites. And then he discovered that suddenly he'd graduated to be a general. In chapter 17 and verse 8, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out, men. Go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Joshua was instantly obedient. He went out and fought. He graduated from being a slave of men to a general of men. And then for his next step, the next round of his development as a victorious leader, he went from being a general to being a servant. Exodus 24 and verse 13. That's what he is called. Exodus 24, 13. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, his servant Joshua. And Moses went up into the mount of God. Well, so he goes from a slave to a general, from a general to a servant, and then from a servant to a leader. Joshua chapter 1 and Joshua chapter 4. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore rise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. So here the servant is suddenly a leader again. Chapter 4 and verse 14. On, the day, on that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him or respected him 
as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So he goes from a slave to a general, from a general to a servant, from a servant to a leader, and then he graduates from a leader of men to a slave of God. That is the destiny God has planned for you and me. Whatever else we achieve in this life, God's ultimate purpose for us is that we become his willing, joyful, voluntary bond slaves, love slaves, giving all to him. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, we've uh, went into some detail on that in the previous ser sermon where he meets the captain of his soul, falls at his feet, and worships him. And he said, this is what the captain of the host of the Lord says to him in verse 14. As captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's how you develop a victorious leader. Joshua could not achieve anything until he first learned to obey God. A general gives orders. A leader sets an example. A servant obeys with an expectation of a reward. But a slave just does what he's told. And he doesn't expect a reward. He's a slave. He has no rights. His master tells him to do something and he does it. All he ever expects is the next thing to do after I've done this thing, is I'm going to obey him again, whatever he asks of me. The genius of Joshua's leadership, and it, he was a genius, was not that he devised a brilliant campaign. He didn't devise it. But that he somehow was able to inspire this unruly group of rebels to follow God and to walk around that city seven days in a row and seven times on the last day. That made Joshua a great leader. Do you realize that our pastor is in the same position? Uh, and every good pastor of every good church is in exactly the same position. His task is to corral all those rebels and try and get them all pointed in the right direction, walking with God. Literally to walk. And in the case of the children of Israel, walking made no sense at all and yielded no results. Until it did. They didn't know when that moment would come. And neither do we. And our test is just to keep walking until the results do come. And that leads us to our victorious labor. That walking, the development of, victor of a victorious campaign, that takes a bunch of steps. The first one is consecration, a prelude to true commitment. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 5. This is where uh, he tells them they're going to cross the Jordan River. Joshua said unto the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Before they could cross into the promised land, they had to sanctify themselves, consecrate themselves to God, recommit to God. 
And that took commitment. The next step was to cross the Jordan. Death and resurrection. Precisely the same thing that had happened at the Red Sea. They'd seen the sea part as they left uh, Egypt. They passed through on dry ground. Exactly the same thing happened at the Jordan. This wasn't a baptism for them in the same way as the first one was when, when they left Egypt behind them. This was far more serious. Here, they leave their old life behind them. They leave their old selves behind them. They are now consecrated to God, passing over this barrier into a land that he has promised them they will conquer and possess. And then, convocation, unity of purpose. Joshua chapter 6. Here they get to Jericho, and we're going to look here at the scriptures that back up what I was talking about a moment ago. Uh, Jericho was shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. This shall you do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets. The ark of the covenant was going to lead the army. God's presence would lead them. And seven trumpets of lamb's horns, God's word would lead them. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people, sorry, back to verse 4, um, and the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets, and it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Now, it turns out they knew exactly what was going to happen. So the story I told you before, they weren't entirely oblivious to what God had planned for them. They knew what was going to happen and what they needed to do each day for it to happen. Do you realize that we have exactly the same directors from God? We have this book. It tells us how to behave. It tells us how to walk with him. And it tells us what will happen if we continue to walk with him. And just like them, we read it, we believe it, and then we don't do it. And we complain, and we turn back, and we argue with God, and we wonder if there's not a better way for God to deal with us. We go through exactly what they went through. We know the steps, we know the outcome. We have stories like this to lead us and guide us and inspire us. And yet, we don't do what they did, was just keep quiet, don't say a word, and do his bidding every moment of every day until he wins the victory. So they had unity of purpose. They kept walking with God. And then they had courage. Joshua 6, verse 12 
And Joshua rose early in the morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord and seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually, blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the re-reward or the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into camp. So they did six days. That took a lot of courage for them to continue to do this day after day with no results. God expects the same courage from us. This is how we develop our victorious labor for him. Just keep walking. And the conclusion is always exactly the same. Verses 16 to 20. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew with the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! And the Lord hath given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that they are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. What a victory. But the victory wasn't theirs. They just participated in the victory. It was a vicarious victory, a vicarious conquest. The primary lesson to take away from the Battle of Jericho is the obedience of God's people. The battle was won not by battering rams, but by proclaiming God's word. Not by fighting, but by walking with God. Not by a siege, but by submission to God. Not by strategy, but by consistency in believing God. Not by prowess, but by persistence in following God. There was no hero in the battle, but God. There was no performance, but God's. His people did nothing but fall in behind his guiding presence and walk, one step in front of the other, day after day, doing his will according to his word. There was nothing glamorous in simply walking, but they did it. And at last, they triumphed. And this is how we triumph. We begin as a child of God who grows up to be a willing slave of God, we're not intimidated, or we shouldn't be, by the size of the problems we face. We don't look for spectacular answers. We don't seek the easy way out. We seek God. We follow God. We submit to God. We obey God. And then the walls in our lives fall flat, and we conquer. We walk when he says walk. We stand still when he says stop. We speak when he says speak. We follow Jesus, who said, I do nothing of myself. But as my Father had taught me, I speak these things. And he that, is, he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. John 8, 28 and 29. Jesus is the one who leads us in our walk. His intention is always to change us so that he can be a blessing to others through us. And then we share in the glorious triumphs of the Lord. 
Don't there are over 3,000 promises in Scripture? And we inherit them all as we obey God. That's his intention for us. Just as God promised Jonah, uh, Joshua. But as with Joshua, so with us. We must walk in them, those promises, to make them our own. And triumph in him. Hallelujah. What a life he's given us. What exciting things we face ahead if we'll just do what God tells us to do. Father, please bless us, remind us uh, 